The following discussion features Harvard Business School professor, behavioral scientist, and Ivy thought leader, Francesca Gino. Gino's groundbreaking research focuses on judgment and decision-making, and is richly explored in her recent book, Sidetracked, Why Our Decisions Get Derailed and How We Can Stick to the Plan. Gino joined Avi to discuss the psychological reasoning behind why we struggle to hold on to certain decisions and how to actually best reach our intended goals. Everybody, I think, has a longer or shorter list of the things that we want to accomplish. And our intentions are, it's not that we're lying to ourselves, we're for real. <laughs> we write them down, we have very good intentions, but somehow, often we don't get there. Please enjoy our conversation with Francesca Gino. So we're going to talk mostly about the book. Um, you should know by training your behavioral psychologist, mm-hmm. right? Um, and she is a star at HBS, so she will try to be uh, modest, but she really is when she gets up in front of a room and not only teaches negotiation, and um, but the stuff that really attracted me to Francesca's book was it she's able to explain not why people are so weird, but kind of (laughs) on what dimensions people are so weird, and then she can back it up with laboratory and real-world studies. So I want you to start off by telling us on what dimensions are people weird in your work. Maybe that's a good way to start. Uh, Many, (laughs) I would say. Uh, When I think about the way we are weird, which is what actually led to this book. I think of it as all our good intentions, and we all have them, like we have lofty goals of spending more time at the gym, or uh, spending more time with our friends, or it could be working less, or you name it. Everybody, I think, has a longer or shorter list of the things that we want to accomplish. And our intentions are, it's not that we're lying to ourselves, we're for real. (laughs) We write them down, we have very good intentions, but somehow often we don't get there. And I think we are weird in the sense that we're very clear on what we want to accomplish, we're committed to our goals, and so often we just look at how we're behaving and there is a disconnect. And it doesn't even matter, it seems, how important that goal is or how much we're committed to it. There is that strange disconnect. So I'm sort of fascinated by it. Um, I could say that I've collected a lot of examples throughout the year uh, from people like you, but also from uh, all sorts of organizational settings. But I would be lying (laughs) if I didn't say that it happens to me too. And I write about these things. And so sometimes I look at the disconnect and I wonder, why are we so weird? (laughs) Is there a way to be a little bit more aligned such that we end up following through on our decisions and actually reaching the things that we say and we believe we care about. Yeah, so it's good that we're all weird together. Mm -hmm. We're all weird together. But your husband is weird in a particular way. (laughs) (laughs) So that's an awkward transition. But I'm thinking specifically a story in the book that uh, I think it's the lead story in the book where you talk about when Greg bought a watch. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about his buying a watch and what that means. Yeah. Yeah, to uh, defend my husband for a second, I (laughs) was a person who for years 
grew up in a very traditional Italian family where you never bring a date home unless it's really serious and you have very long relationship with a lot of um, trying to get my attention and stuff like that. We grabbed, we met at the airport and I basically invited him to move in with them a few months later. So you can question this inconsistency that I'm talking about and that we see my weird husband uh, also in some of my choices. The story that Tim is referring to is uh, a story that actually I talk about um, in the introduction to the book. And it's a story that is puzzling because when I think about the many, 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 many qualities of my husband, one of them is that he has a very clear moral compass. Uh, I think that's Again, one of his virtues, and usually seems to be able to stick to it. But we took a trip a while back to the Middle East, to Dubai, where my sister was living at the time. And one of the activities that is really fun to do is to spend time in the old part of town that is called Souk. They have markets. And it's interesting because you get to, I love negotiating, so you get to negotiate on everything possible, <laughs> even for stuff that is worth like less than a dollar. But you stay there, you haggle, and then you get the thing uh, back home and feeling good about the price that you negotiated. But as we were walking through the souk, I sort of lost the sight of my husband. And as it turns out, he was in the back of a room negotiating with a vendor about a watch that he was interested in buying. And he knows watches inside out, as many. Um, and in that particular case, it was a watch that in the United States, I think is like $10,000. But he was able to buy one for something like around $100. Now, an important difference is that it wasn't real. It was a fake. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not really his negotiation capacity. In fact, I would say that maybe he, given that it was a fake, he probably paid too much for it. But that's a separate story. And uh, it's interesting because he was so proud of the fact that he was walking away with this $10,000 watch and his friends would look at him and ask him where he got it and he would be able to show it off. And by the time we got to the car, it sort of dawned on him that it, it, it felt like a fake. And his experience was an interesting one because it was related to some of the research that I was doing on the fact and on the very basic idea that wearing inauthentic products, fake uh, replicas, actually lead us not only to feel fake as in his case, but also to behave like a fraud and actually engage in dishonest behavior. Uh, so he was driving too fast on the way back home. Um, you could think as a way where I saw that reflected in his behavior, but it was an interesting story because he represented a type of weirdness where we wanted to be good people, have a strong moral compass, and oftentimes we end up doing things that are very inconsistent with that. So can you talk actually about the experiment a little bit? Because one of the things you do as a social psychologist, you, you do lab experiments with people yeah. to test this stuff. And so go into the, the sunglasses experiment a little bit and kind of to bear that out. Because it's one thing to say, Greg bought this cheap watch. He knew it was a fake. He was driving too fast. And another thing to say. Let's back it up yes. <laughs> with some research, shall we? Uh, so this is a project that I worked on with uh, two great colleagues of mine. One is Dan Ariely. You might 
heard of him. He's a professor now at Duke, and the other one is a colleague at HBS, Mike Norton. And I spent a couple of years prior to being at Harvard, uh, actually the University of North Carolina, and I had an office at Duke. And what is interesting, the many interesting things about Dan is that uh, he often receives stuff in his office that we sort of look at, and then have, we used to have brainstorming sessions about what do we do with this. And at one point in time, uh, Chloe, the designer, sent him a bunch of bags. And their interest was uh, to figure out why is it that we see so many companies creating replica for the bags and other products that they had, the sunglasses as well. Uh, they sent a lot of them. And we thought that we really couldn't help with those questions, but that we could come up with other questions that um, would be interesting to us and potentially interesting to the rest of the world. And so when we looked at those products, we thought that an interesting question was, since in fact there are so many fake and replicas of very well-known products that you can buy for cheap, as in the case of my husband, Wearing those, does it actually influence your behavior? That was really the question that we were asking. And in particular, the idea was simple. Is it possible that if you wear a fake, you behave like a fraud? And so to test our ideas, uh, I brought all the glasses back to UNC and I invited groups of participants to come to the lab. We decided to focus on women because of the products that we had. So it was sunglasses and bags. And we set up um, what I thought was an interesting study to set the ideas, where people were brought in and they were asked to wear the products, in particular wear the sunglasses. And they were told that they would evaluate the quality of the product. So we made them do a bunch of different things, like walking around the hall. We put all sorts of interesting posters on, posters on the wall so that they could see whether the glasses were good versus not. And then to give them more time to evaluate the products, we asked them to engage in a series of tasks on a computer. And the tasks were structured such that they could actually cheat in order to gain more money on the task. So some of you are going, yeah, I can see myself doing that. Um, but our question was, would the behavior on the task where people could cheat be different if participants were told that the sunglasses were real or if they were told that the sunglasses were fake? And again, all the sunglasses were the same. So they were actually sunglasses by Chloe. So the real thing. But they were coming, you were picking them up from a box that says fake sunglasses or real sunglasses. And what is interesting is that across a series of studies, we do see a difference in behavior, such that when people were going through this task wearing sunglasses that they thought were fake, they were actually more likely to cheat. And you might wonder why on earth does that happen? And we have some evidence through self-reports that when people wear fake sunglasses, a little bit like my husband, you do end up feeling inauthentic and fake, and that is driving you to behave like a fake. So it was a, a good example and a good story um, that sort of summarized some of the research on the ways in which we are weird, because <laughs> even in something as important as our own morality, we see ourselves cheat depending on what we wear. 
So there are all these different forces around us that just take us off track from fake sunglasses to, I mean, what are the three, you have three buckets. I have three buckets. Yeah. You added in the book, so you should know <laughs> what the buckets are. I'm, I'm trying to give you the state, Francesca. Thank you. <laughs> so I talk about, in the book, I talk about three buckets of factors. Uh, the first is what I call the forces from within. So we're all fantastic and incredible in what we can do. But as it turns out, we have emotions and we make errors that influence our judgment and decisions. And those often derail us. Then we have forces from our relationships. Um, not only we are human beings, we are social human beings. And often the relationship that we have with one another actually take us off track rather than helping us achieve our goals. And finally, we make decisions in context. So this third set of forces are forces from the situation, from the external world, and there are various factors, and it could be from temperature to whether the situation is one that leads you to feel a lot of pressure. These are factors that are related to the situations and they influence our decisions. And I just want to give you maybe a quick example of how I think about our weirdness and our own, um, this set of forces that influence our decisions. So I'm going to ask you, how much wine did you have? Is like <laughs> a little or a lot? Because you might not be able to keep track of these numbers, but there's only four of them, so we'll see. Um, so think about the people who are in this room. If you have some information about each other, probably not a lot. It's okay. I would like to ask you to do something on your own. So don't spell out or yell out your numbers. Just keep them in your head if you can. So I'm going to give you some dimensions. Let's say three dimensions to do this quickly. And you're going to be thinking about how you think you rank in percentiles as compared to the other people in the room. So if you think that on that particular dimension you're the best person in the room, 100%, this is the number that you have in your head. If you think that on that particular dimension you're like at the rock bottom, you're thinking 0%, and anything in between. And the only thing that I'm gonna ask you is 100% is the maximum, so let's not go above that. Uh, again, if you're thinking, that you're coming out really good, keep, it, keep the numbers for yourself. Um, I'm gonna give you three dimensions for each of them, a number between zero and 100, okay? The first one is your ability to get along with other people. The second dimension, since we're talking about decision-making, your ability to make good decisions. And the third one, your honesty. Okay, you should have three numbers trickling in your head. I'm gonna make it a little bit more difficult on you. Compute the average or the mean across those three. <laughs> I know you had some wine, but like roughly, <laughs> you should be able to do it. She means add the three numbers together. <laughs> divide by three. And then divide by three. Okay, you're left with one number only, right? And it should be a number between zero and 100. If it's above 100, you are doing something that is wrong. <laughs> so readjust. As I said, the numbers are yours, not for sheer, uh, for sheer consumption. But 
if you don't mind, if the number that you just computed in your head is bigger than 50, five zero, just raise your hand up high. Oh man. <laughs> See, this is so wonderful. You can put your hand down. This is why I was so excited to spend my evening with you and Tim. Um, it's also mathematical impossibility for everybody to be better than average. Now, I'm not trying to make fun of you, but this is a perfect example of one of the forces that comes from within. We all, like I left myself out of this exercise, but my hand would be up. We all can pick whatever positive dimension and we would think very highly of ourselves, better than the average person. And that leads often to overconfidence. And so when it comes to making a decision, we don't listen to others, we just stick to our own way of thinking. Or when it comes to going for, to others for advice or to hear their perspective, we're really not listening even if we're asking. And so this is just an example of the weird ways <laughs> in which our mind works. Um, and so a big motivation of working on this book was to try to uncover those ways and then talk about potential ways to fix them or counteract these forces. Okay, so let's talk about fixing a little bit now, because we're all above average. We're going to be able to follow this <laughs> and know what's going on. But for instance, so let's go with decision-making. This is one of the fields you're an expert in. Mm -hmm. And if we are more likely to just, if we think we're excellent decision-makers and we're more likely to discount what everybody else has to say about it, like what do we do about that? Mm -hmm. So a couple of different contexts. You could think about personal decision-making or business group decision-making, maybe for some different answers there. Yep. So whenever I want to summarize the force that we just talked about, I have usually a picture, and it's the picture of a cat looking in a mirror and seeing a lion. And I use that picture to sort of make the point that it's gonna be very difficult for us to wake up tomorrow morning and think of ourselves and actually look at the mirror and seeing the cat. It's just not the way our mind works. But what we can do is be aware that that happens to all of us and have the humility to say, okay, if that is happening to me, maybe I'm gonna stop and edit next time I make a decision. And I'm asking myself tough questions, like am I actually listening to the evidence that other people are providing in looking at the situation? So I think that part of the solution to the problem is awareness, it's humility, um, there is something fascinating that happens when I teach about decision-making versus when I teach about negotiation. And it doesn't matter whether it's MBA students, undergraduate, executives. With negotiations, people say, well, she's there, she's at Harvard, maybe she has something interesting to say, she's going to give me some techniques. I'm good, I can get better. With decision-making, it's all about thank you. Now I understand the many different ways in which my colleagues grew up at work. <laughs> it's all like on the others rather than on ourselves. So I think we need the humility to recognize that uh, whether fortunately or unfortunately you decide our brain is wired in weird ways that lead to this type of forces affecting our decisions. So the second part is important because it points to another solution, especially when we think about our working organization. We should be smart in the sense of 
exploiting our own biases. So now that we know that, for instance, we have this tendency to be overconfident or to be narrowly focused on our own point of view, if you're the, in a team setting, can you structure things differently such that that is less rather than more likely to happen? And companies have done that, like some organization have successfully used um, the idea of a devil's advocate. And what they're trying to do is to bring out different perspectives to address exactly this problem. Um, it, this seems to me to feed kind of directly into the planning fallacy. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> I love, so you, you'll explain what it is, but I love the Kahneman story about trying to write a textbook, kind of the idea that you're better than everybody else. Could you talk a little bit about that? So the planning fallacy, it's one of... Uh, the interesting biases that you might relate to, we'll see. Think about last time where you were trying to estimate completion on a task or a project. And you were trying to come up with how long it's going to take you to complete X task. As it turns out, that's an area where we tend to show that type of overconfidence. So we say it's going to take me two days, and then in reality, it's going to take seven. For instance, Francesca is writing another book, and the manuscript is due on June 30th. I'm just saying, just keep that in mind. This could be. It's very difficult to get rid of these biases. Um, but there is actually a really interesting story about uh, the planning fallacy in terms of how to address it. And for some biases, again, if you know how they work and if you're in the situations where it's not only your own biases but the biases of others, and the story comes from uh, Microsoft, and this goes a few years back, what they were experiencing as a problem was the planning fallacy was on the part of the engineers who were saying, I have this project, it's going to take me X number of months to complete it, and then the reality of it is that it was not completed by the deadline. And so what the management was saying is work harder, as it often happens, and people would burn out. So that was the problem that they were dealing with. And so what they decided to do is to look at it and say, it's difficult to manage. And in fact, there are some studies that shows that you could reduce it, but it is tough to get at these biases. So what they decided to do is to change the situations around where the bias was happening. And so they introduced a system where they had a lot of data about previous projects. And so you would know whether project A, type A, would end up being three months late or type B would end up being six months late. And what they decided to do was to ask for the estimates to the engineers. And then they said, oh, this is project A. We're going to add a buffer of X number of months. And so, so that's what they did. And they were trying to work around the problem in a way that <laughs> didn't address the bias directly, but address the context uh, around it. Um, so let's talk a little bit about other forces. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about internal ones. Um, maybe something, I, one of the questions that I was talking about before with someone was about social proof and hiring. Mm -hmm. So kind of biases introduced by your expectations around other people. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. So 
let's see if you've had ever this experience of you go into a meeting and maybe you are evaluating candidates or you're a person who is in charge of hiring or you're out on a date and you're just trying to look at the person who's in front of you and figure out whether you want a second date versus not. Um, <laughs> or ask them to move in with you, which is a separate <laughs> conversation altogether. And it's rare in those situations to sit down prior to the meeting or the event and say, okay, here are the things that I'm really gonna look out for. Or here are the questions that I'm gonna ask. And you're very set on those and the standards that you're gonna use to evaluate the person. What usually tends to happen is those come up as you're talking to the person. So you could, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to a personal story and then we'll bring in some research to actually talk about this point. Let's actually go to my husband since it's such an interesting <laughs> example. Um, but I am very sporty. And when I met my husband, he was overweight, but a lot. Like he would walk up a hill in Boston <laughs> to go and get a coffee and he would really like, he would have to stop to talk to you because he wouldn't be able to breathe. So he was a very uh, a big person. And I always thought that I would get together and uh, maybe date as one of the important things, a person who could share interest with me. And when I learned that and I collected some evidence about my husband, I was like, no, no, I'm, that has never been really an important factor. An important factor is for this person to have a high level of empathy. So basically I was making up the standards that were fitting the person who was in front of my eyes. Now, am I using this example? Because we often do that even when it comes to hiring or even when it comes to evaluating candidates where features appear in the process and we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's a dimension that really is important for the type of person that we're looking at rather than deciding upfront. And this is a perfect situation where if we decide upfront, we're gonna be less likely to be affected by potential biases. So one of the biases that kicks in in hiring in dating, in all sorts of other contexts, is it's called the similarity bias or affinity bias. So the more we have in common with another person, the more we tend to like them. So it's, it's very natural, actually, but it does tend to affect the way we look at the person. And if you think of the implications of it, uh, there are studies conducted on team uh, interactions that shows that what you're doing is basically completely reducing diversity in perspective in a way that hurts the performance of the team. So that's one reason why symphony orchestras were all men for so long, mm -hmm. for instance, right? So can, do you want to talk about blind, kind of blind yeah. trials, just real briefly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually something that I did not uh, explore to a great extent in the book. Uh, and it's the fact that in addition to all the biases, the type of biases that we're talking about, which are conscious in the sense that now that we know that they exist, we can point to them and think about ways in which we can defend ourselves against them. But in addition to that, there are biases that happen at the unconscious level. So we are not aware that we are affected by them. And so if you think about 
stereotypes, gender bias, race bias, or age. Those are all sorts of biases that are happening without us knowing that they exist. Uh, sometimes when I'm teaching about these issues, I have uh, used, since again, you might be sitting there, I was like, yeah, yeah, but not me. I am always able to take that out of the process. <laughs> it does not influence the way I think about it. Um, if you don't like me as much as you thought you would uh, when you walked in, it's because I have an accent. Let's blame it at that. I actually ran studies to show that that is the case, um, and I use it. <laughs> Whenever I receive teaching ratings I don't like, that's the justification. I say that is the research that proves. But if I were here and we were in a classroom set up, what I often would do to prove these biases uh, is I would put up a test that was developed actually at Harvard. Uh, if you're curious, go to implicit.harvard.edu, and there are multiple versions of this test. Some of you, you might have already seen. <laughs> the one that I often do, especially if I have executives in my class, is the associations of words that are related to work or family. So like office, career, money, whatever. Family would be... Uh, laundry, cooking, children, etc. And the things that those are associated with are names that are clearly of female or male people. And so you go through this exercise and it's kind of fun. You basically see a word appear in the middle of the screen and in a room like this, you would say, if the word is a category male, you need to say left. If it's female, you need to say right, and you go through it super quickly. And people seem to be able to do these categorizations really easily. And then you do two words. So you say if it's the word that you see in the middle of the, scre the screen, it's either female or related to home, you say left. And if it's male or related to career, you say right. You go through the exercise, you have the time right on the screen. And then you ask them on the last round to do if the word in the middle of the screen is either female or related to career, you say left. And if it's male or related to family, you say right. And it's absolutely fascinating to see how you're tripping people up. Because now they're going slower, there are lots of more mistakes, people start laughing, and they realize that it's like very naturally the second type of associations are happening faster than the third one. So that's a perfect example where implicitly there is something in you that is saying, ah, this association is happening more easily than this one. And that's unfortunately an unconscious bias. Um, so in one of the things that, so when I was working on the book, I thought, well, fine, like I'm above average and none of this is going to affect me. <laughs> um, the, but you have this, you talk about this experiment with um, the the t-shirt experiment, right? Mm -hmm. Blue t-shirts and red t-shirts. Mm -hmm. And I find this one fascinating because of kind of the force of the finding. Can you talk a little bit about that? This was at a time where a lot was happening uh, in the world in terms of scandals, cases of misconduct, and it was also the time of the financial crisis. And some of the theories that 
um, I read were theories of, uh, for example, people who were not qualified to get certain loans, were getting the loans, and somehow practices in the office were uh, contagious in the sense of you would give loans to people who were not qualified, even if that was not your intention in the first place. And he raised the question of, is it possible that unethical behavior is actually contagious? That was the question that uh, I was asking with my colleagues. And so to prove that, we designed a series of studies where the idea was to create a situation where, again, I would bring people into a room a little bit smaller than this one and then give them the opportunity to work on a task where they had the opportunity to cheat and actually get away with it. So, for instance, in one of our studies, you would come in and you would have a series of 20 math puzzles to solve, but under time pressure. So you had four minutes, you had to work as hard as you could, and then depending on your performance on the task, you would get paid. So one condition that we had was one like the one that I had described. You come in, you work for four minutes on this task, you know the rules from the start, and then you bring the puzzle to me, I check your work, and I pay you a dollar a puzzle, let's say. It was a little bit higher than that. And what you would see is that on average, under time pressure, people actually have a hard time completing the puzzle. So you could imagine like an average of six puzzles out of 20 completed. We had a different version of the experiments where we hired a paid actor. And this is a person who was supposed to follow a script. And when I was actually hiring students who could serve as the actor, there is a great drama department. I was a faculty member at Carnegie Mellon University at the time. And uh, the guy who really impressed me was a guy who told me in the interview that when he was little, like four or five years old, he was diagnosed to be a compulsive liar. And so I was like, oh, this guy is perfect. He's going to do the job uh, easy. So. In those sessions, uh, what we had was the paid actor serve as a regular student uh, coming to the session. And he had a, to follow a script where basically after a minute, he would stand up and say, I'm done with everything. What, what am I going to do? And in those cases, we left an envelope with the money on each person's desk. And so the experimenter would say, well, if you're done, you can pay yourself and leave. And so it was clear to everybody that this guy cheated and he didn't get punished for it. It could just walk away with the full amount of money. And again, if that's a, it's after a minute, so you kind of know that it's impossible for him to have done the 20 puzzles correctly. And what we did in that version of the study, we were interested in seeing if seeing another person cheat, a person like you, another student of the same university, would actually lead you to cheat. And we had this uh, person actually wear a t-shirt of Carnegie Mellon University, so you sort of knew that this was a, uh, one of your peers. And what we saw across the sessions is that if you looked at the performance reported on the math puzzles, so again, before it was around six, now all of a sudden it's 14. Now, it's not that people were smarter because they saw another person cheat, we could tell that they were basically inflating their performance to get more money. We also had a, a different version where 
the confederate was still there, the paid actor, but this time he was wearing a t-shirt of a university in Pittsburgh that is considered to be a rival university. And so it was the University of Pittsburgh. And we were sort of interested to see if the contagiousness of the behavior is different when you see a person that you kind of don't like. And that's what we actually found. So in those cases, the cheating is actually significantly lower if you look at the performance across the board on the task. So it seems as if, even in a context as serious as ethics, the behavior of others is contagious. So seeing another person cheat leads us to sort of move away from our moral compass, especially if he's a person, he or she is a person like us, a person that we feel is similar or that we can connect to. And it can be as something as trivial as the T-shirt they're wearing, mm -hmm. which I just find fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, we don't have a ton of time left before we get to the Q&A, but where do you come up with this stuff? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, by observing the world, it, it's, it's very interesting because I spend quite a bit of time Reflecting on my puzzling behavior or the puzzling behavior of people like my husband, no people are around me. And then as soon as something strange or weird seems to stick out, I go and pay more attention to whether I'm seeing the same pattern of behavior in other situations. And when I say, yep, that seems to be the case, then I usually take it back to the lab design a study and design a way to actually put some data behind it to test whether my theory is about that particular behavior is true versus not. And you might think that once you walk away from personal life and you walk into an organization, all of a sudden we become smarter. And it is not true. So a lot of the observations are also coming from spending time in organizations and seeing very bizarre <laughs> behaviors. Uh, and I think this will probably get close to the, the end here, so I'll make this my last question. But the, um, tell us what you're working on next. So if you want to talk about rebel talent a little bit, because it strikes me that a lot of the stuff you talk about in that is a, in a lot of ways an, an application of what you've learned mm -hmm. through a bunch of the studies you've done. Yeah, so uh, I am actively working on a book that is due on <laughs> <laughs> 30th. <laughs> that was actually incredibly well thought out. <laughs> there is a plan, uh, a, a very good one. So I'm going to try to stick to it. Um, the contract, by the way, actually says August 30th, but in my head, uh, it's June 30th. Uh, but whatever, it's still a very short amount of time. And the topic of the next book is uh, Rebel Talent. So I had the fortune of writing about some of these ideas back in October. Uh, thanks to uh, fantastic collaborations with the Harvard Business Review and sort of put the ideas out there. And it seems like people were interested in some developing a book around that. But even the core of the idea behind Rebel Talent really starts with an observation of something that is just weird, which is the following. I have met a lot of people who, if you talk to them the day before or the day they're starting their new job, are incredibly excited. They're super ready to contribute, to bring their innovative ideas to the table, and maybe there is some anxiety because it's a new environment, but for the most part is motivation 100% ready to start. 
And then you talk to the same people six months, eight months, or a year later, and he's just like talking to different ones. And he's the same person. And so you wonder why is it that that has happened? So I was struck by this observation that engagement just drops. And why might that be the case, given that we do spend a large chunk of our days at work, and I would argue that it's probably better for us to be happy and satisfied with what we're doing rather than um, frustrated and unhappy uh, with it. And it's very consistent with data across the world that shows that most people are actually disengaged. So it's finding the answer to that type of puzzle and suggesting a way forward, which is be a little bit more rebels. I'm gonna leave a little bit of suspense. <laughs> because I'm still trying to figure it out as I, as I write. Thanks, Francesca. And I think we're going to do uh, audience Q&A now. Let's just give a warm round of applause to Francesca and Tim. And now I'd love to open the floor for if any of you have questions for Francesca. Yeah, I see a hand. I will run a mic up. Thank you very much. Uh, that was really, really uh, interesting and inspiring. Um, I wanted to ask you two questions, actually, if I can. Um, the first one was, you've done a lot of research on um, how we set goals, but we are so good at being sidetracked and not following up with the plan. And um, I wanted to know if, in your research, you've seen some difference in, say, top 1% of performers compared to, say, the bottom 1%. Are they somehow better at following up with the plan? And if so, are there any techniques that they use to kind of keep themselves on, on, the, on the plan? And um, sorry, if I may follow up with the second question was, you also mentioned a lot of traits, um, a lot of weirdness in, in, in us that you know, kind of diverts us from basically anything we want to do. Um, and it's interesting to me to be able to identify that, say, in my behavior from day to day. But I was wondering, like all of us, well, most of us would not be able to do that, you know, every day today, we get stuck in our own routine, in our own thinking patterns. So can you recommend, say, one particular exercise or one particular way where we can do that in our daily life? Mm -hmm. So to your first question, it's interesting because whenever I talk about decision making, one of the questions that comes up is, but where is the variation? So for example, do you see gender differences? Do you see differences in cultures? Do you see differences based on personality? And I am not here to suggest that those are not important, but generally when you look at the body of research, they tend to make the biases or errors bigger or smaller, but on average, the bias is still there. Now, there are particular personality traits that help uh, in uh, allowing us to be better able to deal with our own plans and actually act upon that. One of them is, um, it's called in the literature, self-control. What that means is when you're thinking about trade-offs that involves, I could stay in front of the TV in this comfy couch right now versus... <laughs> Going to the gym and the benefit of that is going to come in the longer term. We have a, a bias for 
the benefit in the present and so we stay stuck to our couch. And people who have a higher level of self-control are better able to be, uh, to have a higher preference for uh, going to the gym. So that's a trait that definitely helps. It's difficult to develop traits. So often when I talk about solutions is thanks to the science, we can identify ways in which we can do better. So a very easy one, easy, a very um, good piece of advice comes from research on goal setting. Uh, this is research that I've not conducted, but there are amazing studies on it, on the power of what they're called implementation intentions. So it's not only that you're thinking about your plans, but you're really pushing yourselves on how is it that you're gonna implement them. So if in fact you do wanna go to the gym, don't leave the plan there, and I'm sure that today I'm gonna find time, <laughs> put actually the time in the calendar. Think through how you're gonna get there. So one of the uh, studies that I really love on this topic is a study that was done um, by a colleague of mine at the is at Harvard Kennedy School, and his name is Todd Rogers, and in his prior career, he's a professor there and is very much interested in education right now. But before that, he was interested in understanding voting, and so he was working on large field experiments to convince people to get out and vote. And so, in one of his studies, back to the 2008 elections, um, he had uh, the equivalent of an experiment. There's people being called up, and usually the question that you receive is, are you going to vote? Yes and no, the call is done. And he had people develop a different script, which was, are you going to vote? And if the answer is yes, then I'm asking you, when is it that you're going to vote? Where? How are you going to get there? Are there going to be other people with you? And so basically it was walking through them thinking about implementation. And he found some really interesting results where voting, whether you vote or not, is actually uh, available data. And so the people who developed a plan ended up being more likely to vote. So I think a very good piece of advice is not just developing plans that maybe are concrete, but also think through how am I going to get there? How do I actually implement them and be specific in thinking about that? And your second question, that I spoke for too long about the first one, remind me. Um, Would you recommend any particular exercise that we can oh. do to avoid all the biases? So I would make use of the knowledge and really exploit the bias to the extent that is possible. So for example, if you're a person uh, who think that, yeah, when it comes to those trade-offs, I really have a hard time, is there any way you can avoid them in the first place? So again, I'm gonna give you a personal example just to uh, get your mind thinking about ways in which you can do that. Um, I know that this is based on the research findings that my colleagues and I have. I know that I'm more likely to go to the gym and I find that to be an important part of the day, if I dress up for success. 
meaning I show up at the office and I'm wearing gym clothes. Part of it is the environment, embarrassment of my colleague looking at me and I'm dressed up in gym clothes, but part of it is I'm halfway there. And so I know of the bias and I help myself uh, get there. Or um, sticking to my own weirdness, for many years, like my husband and I had these discussions about the fact that winter in Boston is cold and I should have a car to get to the office. And I have my now mom looking bike and I wanna make sure that I use it. And so the reason why I don't want a second car there is that I know for a fact that the winter day is gonna come and when I have the choice in front of me, I'm gonna say car rather than bike. And so I avoid the problem altogether. So are there ways you can outsmart yourself in a way, and think about ways in which you can exploit your biases rather than fully pray to them. That's how I would think about it. Um, I have a question which is, I think, kind of connected to the previous one. Have you met people who uh, generally won this war with biases and errors? Uh, not like in a small way, like we can, like ordinary people do, but like won. And uh, is there something that mm, connects them, like which is in common? Uh. Uh, so Tim was mentioning a great scholar, thinker, is also a person who won the Nobel Prize in Economics, uh, who is an author of a book that is called Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman. You probably heard of his name. And the reason why I'm mentioning his book is because it talks about a metaphor that exists in the literature um, to describe the way our mind works. And Kahneman talks about two systems, system one and system two. It's a metaphor. If I were to open up your brain right now, which I'm not going to do, I wouldn't see two systems, but it's a really interesting metaphor in thinking about how we process information. Very quickly, system one is a system that relies, uh, it's automatic, is intuitive, it relies on emotions, is very quick, doesn't require a lot of effort. System two instead requires more effort, more thinking, uh, more logic, more deliberation. And if you wanna, one interesting way of thinking about reducing biases is more of a healthy debate between the two. So we should bring in a little bit more deliberation, slow us down when we make decisions. But most of our lives is making decisions based on system one. Now, I'm mentioning this metaphor to answer actually your question, even if it might seem like I'm dodging it. Um, it's the system describe our mind. So we, I, I look at the room, we're all very different. We have different experiences, likely different backgrounds, different interests, but one of the things that we have in common is that we are human. And when you look at brain sciences, they suggest that there aren't a lot of, the same type of differences that are visible or that are on your CVs aren't really reflected in the brain as much. And so given that these biases are hardwired, there are, they tend to happen across the board. So again, there are traits that help. So we talked about self-control as being one of them being more reflective, so people who tend to bring in, to be more deliberative about their decisions, they tend to rely on system two more, 
But I would think of ways in which you can build routines such that you're addressing biases. And one of them is actually bringing in a little bit more reflection to the extent that is possible in your decisions. Um, and I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just trying to say we're humans. And with that comes the fact that we are <laughs> weird uh, and interesting. Did you talk about some of the additional data that you collect on the actual participants of your studies, things like socioeconomic data or things like that, that might help you explain some of the biases that you mm -hmm. find in your studies and help you segment out the population a little bit more? Yeah, it's interesting. So I don't have a good answer in the sense that it's something that I've not specifically looked at. So for example, differences in income levels or... But here's an interesting fact. I think it's interesting in my mind to get answer your question and see if you take the exercise that we just did together, which is an exercise that you can use to sort of prove overconfidence or people having inflated self-views about themselves. I saw almost 100% of your hands up. I travel the globe with this exercise and it never fails me. Like I was last month in India, a group of 90 executives, very high level. I saw it there. Um, I did it in New York a couple of months back with 250 leaders in financial services, 100% of their hands up. Um, I traveled to sort of remote places a little bit when I was in Pittsburgh because our lab actually bought a truck for collecting data. So we were able to go into places that were different from campus and you would see it there. So what we don't know or what I don't know based on my data is how much variance could be explained by socioeconomical differences. But it seems like this type of biases travel well because of the reason that I pointed to that they're hardwired in, in our brain. Um, and now it's, I always say that rewiring the brain is difficult, which is true, but our brain is very plastic. So giving it new experiences, taking time to reflection can in fact have an effect. Um, it takes some time. So sometimes I say the easier way is to think a little bit differently about exploiting your own biases. So I had two questions, but one question was already answered. I was going to ask if these were kind of American-centric studies and if Americans showed perhaps more tendency to have overconfidence. You're saying it's universal? Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure about that. But anyways, the, uh, the second question then is more along the lines of, maybe I have to read the book. But is and can I actually address that for, for the sake okay. of, of uh, uh, being rigorous because it's important. So I, uh, it's not a perfect way of testing the hypothesis that you're putting forward. And I'm sure that across cultures, you're gonna find differences in terms of how strong the effect is. So for example, if we were really to look at gender differences, you would see them in overconfidence. On average, men to be more overconfident than women, but you see the fact in both populations, 
And often when you run these exercises the way I did, you have a room that is all female or a room of all men, and so you tend to see it because it's comparison to the other people in the room. Now, universal is a strong word, actually, because I can think of very different research projects that I um, worked on where the equivalent of who's in the room is different. So I can think of, I, I've been working with a company that opened up centers in developing regions of the world. And actually the interventions that we were trying to do was to build a little bit of worker confidence because these were people who had never had a job before. And when they were thinking about their comparisons targets, it was people in the US or people they read about that actually did have job. So universal is a strong word, but on average you do see this type of biases trickling in and affecting our behavior more so than we would expect. Or often we wanna believe that the individual differences or cultural differences explain more than what they actually explain. Thank you. Uh, so the, uh, the second part of the question then was, uh, do those, you talk about per, uh, distortion of perception of ability. And um, maybe you answer this question in the book, but it seems like it's more of a negative where you're trying to tamper your own self-ability. While if you think about entrepreneurs or people who have been, who are in the, the mythos of America, right? The jobs, didn't finish college, wasn't a programmer, somehow ran one of the largest technology companies on the planet. Um, do you think that kind of the, the proverbial cat looking and seeing a lion was perhaps uh, necessary for mm -hmm. him to be successful and that that kind of self-distortion can be useful rather than just destructive? Oh, that's so I'm going to uh, answer this way. Uh, two thoughts on that. One is that first we should uh, distinguish between confidence and overconfidence. Confidence is a good thing. It's good because we wake up in the morning and we're ready for the day and go ahead and actually put effort in what we're doing. The problem is that when we are overconfident, and so I was when I was talking about the bias, that is what I was referring to. Now, to the big question of isn't the world better off because we have people who are overconfident and are not looking at the data on enterprise failure and just going and, and creating businesses. So I, it's a question that I've been asked before. I've looked uh, for data to answer it. It's, as far as I know, uh, I don't think there is an answer. It, it's quite a tough one to unpack because it's very long-term. It's a hard one because it's, um, we need to think about the counterfactuals, if you will, in the sense of um, looking both at situations where people were overconfident and they started businesses that were in fact successful, but also people who had that overconfidence started business that ended up being a total failure. Uh, so I'm not here to say, again, <laughs> stop looking at the mirror and seeing the cat. I'm here to say, sorry, and uh, seeing the lion, keep seeing the lion, but be aware of what's happening to you. And so I'm okay seeing entrepreneurs being overconfident, 
but I would like them to look at the data and know what they're getting into if that's what they're deciding to do. I'm going to give you a super, try to be a super quick example that, that suggests this, that is mentioned in the book. So one of, of the things that I love to do is riding motorcycles. Um, now I ride that mom-looking bike because I have small children, but I'm going to come back to my own Ducati when I can, <laughs> and they're a little bit older. But one of the, the things that you do often in research is you sort of explore your own interests in a way that... Uh, tries to be uh, important for speaking more broadly about decision-making. And a company that I studied was an Italian company called Ducati Corse. They produce motorcycles for racing. They also have some data that suggests that when they're successful on the track, they sell more commercial motorcycles. What was interesting about them is that back in the early 2000s, they were entering a new type of competition. New rules, new bikes, new everything, new team. And they had been incredibly successful in other competitions. And they said, new competition, our experience doesn't count, let's go in and learn as much as possible. I'm going to make a very long story short. They entered with this very clear goal, amazing action plan, like so all sorts of technology on the motorcycle, they had all potential interesting data coming in and then debriefing processes on how to use it for making changes to the motorcycles. They start racing and they were incredibly successful beyond their own expectations. And then they started going to races and the data was put on the side and they were just opening the bottle of champagne like the real Italians and celebrating happy with what they were seeing. But when it was time to end of the season, make decision for the next season, they basically changed over 60% of the components of the bike without testing. And that is a perfect case of overconfidence. In fact, when you talk to them, that's what they tell you. They didn't look at the data. They just went with their guts because they were so successful. And the second season was a complete disaster because the bike was not uh, designed the right way. So what I'm trying to say is I'm actually okay with the euphoria and confidence, et cetera, but look at the data, do that, pause and edit, and then, have confidence in whatever you choose to do, and hopefully you're paying attention to that data. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.